And now, for the first time in color, the 38th and welcome back to the snub club you know with any truly great motion picture the only thing that dates it really are the fashions of the time the podcast with the movies that have the most oscar noms and no wins whatsoever this is the night devoted to one man oscar Hello, and welcome back to The Snub Club, the movie, the podcast about the movie that has the most Oscar noms and no wins whatsoever. I am your one of your captains, Danny Vincent. <laughs> I was going to do a bit. Um, <laughs> I was going to do a British accent that had a like a, like a Brooklyn accent underneath it. It's going to be really funny. <laughs> I practiced it literally all day. And I can't do it. I'm too shy. Um, just imagine that I said, hi, my name is Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm your gardener, Caleb. <laughs> All right, all right. Before we get to this week's movie, we have to discuss what happened a couple nights ago for us, but two weeks ago for the listeners. And that, of course, is when Chris Rock was on stage and got slapped by Will Smith. We're in a time loop. Ooh. We're in a multiverse. This is a hell. I guess, I guess this is the real multiverse. This is hell <laughs> is what this is. Well... Since you brought that up, Sarah, I gotta say, uh, Brendan Fraser's speech definitely takes the most, like, bizarre one for a guy who was pretty tipped to win. Like, it wasn't, you know, it was a two-person race, but, like, Michelle Yeoh was very clearly prepared, in Kate, even if Kate Blanchett had won. But I feel like Michelle Yeoh was, was like, like, she knew she was gonna win. She went up there, she was like, whatever. I mean, well, well the thing is, it's like in the same way as my point, like, you know, they both would have like they both were probably prepared. I mean, I Austin guess, but Kwan knew, obviously knew he was going to win and he still was really excited about it. I feel like Michelle Yeoh was excited. About it. She was definitely, but I just, but whatever. My, my point is, just, my thing I wanted to say was it's bizarre that after an entire award season of Brennan Fraser giving speeches, he's like, thank you for welcoming back. When he wins the Oscar, he just goes up there and makes whale punts for five minutes. <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't know. I went to the bathroom. Oh, all right. That's fair. I went to the bathroom during the old quiet on the Western Front speak. Hey, I think this was a momentous Oscars because I believe it's the first time since we started this podcast. All three of us actually watched them. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I, just... I had nothing better to do. So. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was a decent ceremony, but. There was one, there were two big winners, actually, honestly. There were two big winners. Blah, blah, blah. I don't think it was a bad score. And this, that movie is actually thematically relevant because, to this week, because it was a remake of a Best Picture winner, and perhaps we will be talking about a remake of a Best Picture winner. From the same, well, there's a bunch of connections. But yes, yes. Um, But... Uh, I guess we should just cut to the chase and say what our snub club movie is. Well, and then we can for those of you, money. for those of you who have no idea what Danny was talking about, he was referencing uh, "All Quiet on the Western Front," bom, 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 which uh, the score I'm annoyed at one for reasons I'll get into after I announce the snub club movie. Uh, 
<laughs> but uh, the winner of the 95th Academy Awards Snub Club is, drum roll please, it's Martin McDonough's The Banshees of Inishurin, which I called in our first one, then backed off on. And last time, Caleb and Sarah were like, yeah, Banshees. So we all won at different points in our time stream. So, but I, I really lost because I should have gone down with Banshees. <laughs> Instead of thinking Carrie Condon was going to win. I thought it was going to be Carrie without the C winning. Well, it's just Carrie. It's just, just Carrie. Yeah, it's just Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> I sent you that list of like lyrics ranked by how much Ariana Bose had probably actually seen the movie. And like in last place, it's just Carrie. <laughs> um, but yeah, the Banshees of Insurance. This was actually a very monumentous Oscars for our podcast in a way. Because this is, I think, I don't have the list of every Oscar since they've added the 10 noms, but five out of 10 nominations for Best Picture went home with no wins, which is kind of crazy. Because really, all been, like, I remember we all, we all ruled out Elvis, saying Elvis has to win something, Elvis won nothing, which is the kind of, like. I just, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> that one will, the most baffling one of the night to me is, um. Because if we want to pull, pull these out, I think production design for all quiet. It's just like, what? <laughs> like, that's my big, like, huh? <laughs> I have a theory. It's the Academy correcting itself. Because if they're going to give all the major awards to what is a, a pretty un-Oscars type movie, like everything, everywhere, then they have to overcorrect and give all the rest of the awards to the most Oscar movie, which I think is safely... Out of that batch, all quiet. The whitest movie. I, it's yeah, definitely the whitest. I would go with the whitest movie. I wouldn't say it's the most Oscar-y. Of I think the most Oscar is Ivor Paperman's Guitar. Um, I think those two are the most like obvious Oscar bait on paper type of movies. I do want to give a shout out to Todd Field here, who with Tar, this is his third film he's made with multiple Oscar nominations to it. When three straight films, no wins at all for his movies. Will we ever cover one of his movies? Maybe. I don't know, but it's not going to be Tar. But I do think that's an interesting little statistic that he makes movies that the Academy loves, but not enough to give an award to ever. Overall, I'm excited for Banshees because that this is the first time that I don't know, we've been doing this podcast and something one that I wanted to see or I've seen Banshees, but like I wouldn't mind rewatching. Um but overall, this is definitely the first good. I'd say this is the first really good entry to the stuff club since we started this podcast. Yeah, on, sorry. You know, I I don't care about who wins the who wins what awards. Obviously, I'm happy if I think it goes to the right person, but I almost immediately forget about all the details after I'm done watching. What I do remember is like amount of stupid bits that are in the Oscars, and this year was relatively low. They seem to be very interested with having a short show and they very wisely decided to cut all the stupid skits and bits instead of cutting actual award presentation. And yet the one bit they did cut was the one thing they did cut off was the visual effects people. No, I was going to say it. No, 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 no. But I'm saying for a bit, for a bit, I'm talking about the bit. I thought you were going to talk about something else. No, I was going to say, say, so Elizabeth Banks with her raspy ass voice comes out. With this cocaine bear, which okay, Disney advertising your movie, and cocaine bear isn't Disney. It's for it's Universal. 
I know. I was calling her Disney to be rude. Um, Oh, okay. Sorry. I'm I'm so tired. And it's like, it's it's visual effects. So it's like the most gimme award of the entire night. And it's like, we do not need her to be talking on and on and on and on. (laughs) Especially because they, people who, again, probably deserve the award the most out of everybody all night. They didn't even get to say anything. (laughs) And... I saw a really good point that, like, I don't know about Top Gun. I didn't, I, I didn't pay attention to Top Gun speech. But someone's like, really? You're playing off the one award that the biggest, the fourth biggest grossing film of all time wins. You, you the Academy, the Constance is like, we want movies that people saw to be winners. And it's like, of course, this year, it's like, it, that whole narrative is so dumb. Because it's like, you know, they nominated Top Gun and Avatar for so much shit. Black Panther 2, even though it wasn't up for Best Picture. And then also everything everywhere all at once is not like it is an indie movie, but it's a huge smash. It's still a blockbuster, in my opinion. I don't. I wouldn't call it. It's like Get Out, where it's not a blockbuster, but it is a movie that hit the zeitgeist. And even though Get Out made double the money, everything. I just and I haven't. I'm not on Twitter, so I don't see these things. But I feel like nobody is talking about like how many people actually did get cut off. And especially women of color, a lot of them mm-hmm. got cut off mm-hmm. and it becomes kind of a pattern. You start to notice it. But the Avatar guys, I mean, come well, on. The Avatar guys, it got me mad because they got cut off and Jimmy Kimmel and even made a joke about them getting cut off. And I was like, what the heck? <laughs> like, especially when it cuts to, I think it cuts to Michelle Yeoh, like a reaction shot when they got cut off. And she looks really like, oh, no. And I was like. Yeah. And it's like Jimmy Kimmel can joke about, oh, you know, the show's going to run really long. First of all, it ran like five minutes long. Second of all, his monologue was 15 minutes and he made a joke about Nick Cannon's kids. Like, where is the relevancy here? I, I missed the monologue because literally I watched the red carpet. Then all of a sudden my TV went out and I like started getting scared and it turned out like the plug just fell out of the TV. But I was just like panicking, trying to figure it out because, you know, you don't think to check the plug. But I... You know, I plugged it in and Guillermo del Toro was on stage going, animation is cinema. And I'm like, all right. Well, you didn't, you missed his uh, entrance when he was standing awkwardly backstage. What, what I did see, because I rewinded it during the commercials, because I wanted to see how the, I want to see how they did the clips presentation for the animated movies, because I always like seeing the clips. And I saw that The Rock and Emily Blunt came out and they did the whole, like, The Rock was just like, you know, some people say animation is for kids, but actually it's not. I'm like, oh, you know Guillermo del Toro called them up and demanded well, that they don't do their There was a lot of like, overcompensating <laughs> at this Oscars. They did the whole yes. animation thing. Jimmy Kimmel was like on stage. Jimmy Kimmel was like um, you know, we're gonna put all the awards in because you guys wanted us to. And then he mentioned Viola Davis and Daniel Denweiler. Like it was very much like they were trying to overcorrect. Did it work? <laughs> Sometimes I did see the opening montage. No. <laughs> That included Nope and Woman King. And I was like, these weren't nominated. Oh, it had, um, no, it had Till in it too. (laughs) See, it's like, you can't put this in your mind. Sorry, go on though. But it just, to me, it felt, and like, I don't know, like part of me is kind of like, it's good that they were like listening, but at the same time, I don't know. It just felt like why even, you know, it's just like, I think about my favorite actress from last year, Rachel Zegler. And how she and how she said that she wasn't nominated, and then it was this big stunt where actually she was nominated, and it's like I don't you know. Being invited, invited. Yeah, invited. invited. Yeah. And I don't know if it would be better or worse if they had invited Daniel Deadweiler or Viola or Viola Davis, but 
I'm sure they probably I, I would not be surprised if they invited Viola Davis to present and she said no. That would that would very much check out, you know. Um I think I think in terms of production, I think this was definitely one of the better produced Oscars I've seen in quite some time. Like it was entertaining, it moved quickly. I think three out of five song performances were legitimately entertaining. Um and the two that were bad were first. Because I think this is what I said. We're going to get into this on the pod. I thought Lady Gaga was the highlight of the night. I I, and like her coming out and doing a, a completely different arrangement of the song from Top Gun. I was like, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. This is why Lady Gaga is like one of our great stars. And then, of course, we got also Rihanna killing the song from Black Panther. And like you say it like that, it sounds bad, but like she did really great. Uh, I was like, wow, yeah, this song is way better when it's not playing over credits that I'm annoyed are playing. And then, of course, Not Too Not Too, which has this old, I recommend there's an article in IndieWire about the behind the scenes of that, which is very sus. They did not get a South Asian choreographer for it. And, you know, you watch that number at the Oscars and you see all the white background dancers. And I'm like, they're completely missing the point of this song. (laughs) But it still was entertaining to watch, not to. Also, my favorite note on, like, you know, standing ovations as you could tell when Not Too Not Too won, that the cat, the people there were annoyed it wasn't nominated for more stuff. Because well, they were just the funniest very thing, happy RRR The won. funniest thing is because there was the big theme this year was sore losers, quote unquote. And mm. Diane Warren, when it wins, she looks so mad. I don't know how she looks. She looks madder and madder every year. She just looks so pit. And the thing that Carrie... People are talking about Angela Bassett and Carrie Condon to a lesser extent and how they looked when Jamie Lee won. And for the record, they're right to be mad. <laughs> if I were them, I'd be pissed too as someone who loves everything everywhere. Well, but, yes, but oh, it's sorry. also, I mean, Angela Bassett is obviously getting the brunt of it for obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. She is. And it's bullshit because Carrie Condon has the exact same reaction. And well, again, I think they're both right to be upset. I've seen I mean, both. They're both better in their movies. See, this is part of the problem I have with this. People project really hard onto these people. Are they mad or are they just disappointed? And like, even if they are mad, like even if Angela Bass is genuinely upset about this, I don't think that it's necessarily okay to like build up this narrative around her to suit. And I'm not saying you're doing this, Danny, but I definitely see people do this around the awards, building up a narrative around their reaction to express a pundit's opinion. I mean, I'm about to do that again because I didn't get to the one I wanted to talk about, the reaction I wanted to talk about. But the thing no one is talking about to me, sorry, Caleb, you are correct, but I did want to mention this, is during Michelle Yeo's Oscar speech, it cuts back to Michelle Williams for a second, and she just looks very upset. And I'm just like, huh? <laughs> like, I saw that. I was just so like, what? Why are you, you, you knew you had no chance to win this. Why are you? <laughs> Sorry, that, that's all I wanted to say is because, you know, I we're, we're, we're going to call out the Angela Bassett thing that everyone's calling out. I think mentioning everyone who looked upset is valid. Personally, I agree. Because. And it's just like, I don't know. I feel like if you've seen anything from Angela Bassett during this award season. Like she is so graceful. She is so like, she's just full of dignity. And it's like, you cannot say that she was like, first of all, she's allowed to be upset and you can't say, Oh, she was pissed because Jamie Lee won. Like whatever. Okay. So now I'm getting. <laughs> it's, it's not, you know, um, 
I don't know. <laughs> I I think uh, I think it's pretty safe to say my most disappointed win of the night is in fact uh, what. Well, I said this earlier. I said I was going to refer to it. My most disappointing one of the night was the original score because I placed a bet on it that would have paid out really well if it had gone the way I wanted to. <laughs> I have a question. This is my discussion my topic. Oh, okay. If you could slap anyone who was on that stage, who would it be? And I have my answer. Well, I mean, I can't. I have to remember everyone who was on stage. Okay. Actually, I kind people of like kind of time. Oh, I know. People, I know. People who listen to my other podcast know exactly who I would slap. <laughs> and it's Guillermo del Toro. You are such a toxic fanboy. Why are you slapping that man? Because he had a movie you didn't like? Oh my word. No, this is I'll tell you exactly when you're Wait a second. Wait a second. I, stage, I can't slap somebody because you... I didn't like their movie. <laughs> No, it's fine. You can slap I, Brendan I Fraser you if you want. Exactly <laughs> Don't do that. when I would go up there and slap Guillermo del Toro. It wouldn't <laughs> be when he won. Because I'd be like, this is I'd be like dumb win, but whatever. You know, the academy gets it wrong all the time. But when he was on stage, he just takes the mic and he goes, Animation is cinema. I was like, stop it with these buzzwords. Just knock it off. I'm tired of it. <laughs> just, just say you made a good movie. Say you're glad the Academy viewed it like just a normal movie. Stop saying that buzz phrase that you keep saying everywhere. I'm tired of it. Um, That's when I would do it. I wouldn't just slap because he won, Caleb. It's because he used that dumb phrase I'm tired of saying everywhere. Yeah, and then you'd steal the Oscar and give it to everyone involved in Wendell and Wilde. Um, Sarah? Yeah. I'd probably just say, oh, I, a- I read the envelope wrong. It's turning red. I have a clarifying question. Does it have to be on stage? Um, I guess not. Okay. But it would um, be on camera. So I was thinking about this. <laughs> okay, yes, it would be on camera. I, you know, I'm not a big fan of Jimmy Fallon, um, but I wouldn't want to slap him normally. Jimmy right? Fallon like wasn't my personal there. Taste. No, sorry, Jimmy Kimmel. The late night Jimmy's. The late night Jimmy's are interchangeable to me. They're both bad. Um, but. The only time I think he did something worthy of slapping was when he was talking to Malala. I'm just like, why are Nobel Prize winner? Why are you dragging her in to stale? Don't worry, darling discourse. This is painful to watch. I want mm, just slap and I wouldn't slap his face. I would just slap the mic out of his hand and then be like, bad, go to the corner. You know, it would have been really exciting if Michelle Yeoh had made good on her Golden Globe promise and, like, actually, like, <laughs> like you know, she said, like, I will beat you up if you play me off. That would have been great. They should have done a bit around that. I... Anyway, sorry. Sarah, who would you slap? Okay. As the person who put the question forward. I have an answer. However, I'm going to I'm gonna tell you my second place first. Um, who I would honestly argue might be the real villain of the night. And that is the white Daniel. He just, something about him just completely rubbed me the wrong way. It was just, honestly, the fact is they played off all these people. And then at the end of the show, he gets to go, he gets to go to the mic and be like, have a good night, everyone. Get off the stage, Daniel. Um, So that was my second place. Okay. My first place. I'm going to get canceled. My first place would be Brendan Fraser. I would definitely slap him. 
That'd be a different multiverse. <laughs> In every multiverse. <laughs> Even the ones where he doesn't win. I would slap him. Um, I just feel like I have a lot of opinions about Brendan Fraser. I will try to be concise. I feel like he he went through a bad thing. It was terrible what happened to him. I have not heard him ever acknowledge that he is very privileged to be a man in this situation. I think a role like the whale would never happen to a woman. I think that he has so many roles lined up already that he did not need to take this particular role. I think that everybody involved in this movie is morally reprehensible because it is not a good story to tell. And I disagree with all of it. <laughs> Can I defend one person from the movie? Who? Hong Chao. Hong Chao. <laughs> <That's, laughs> yeah, Hong Chao. That's, that's really it is Hong Chao. <laughs> like... <laughs> also, like, I will say, speaking of yeah. Hong Chao, Dolly D, Gary and Carrie with a C, <laughs> I thought that Ariana DeBose was really cute with Troy Kotsik. That's my positive. Oh, yeah. No, I, I enjoyed that presentation. Um, I, the timing was a little off, but I also liked Michael B. Jordan and Jonathan Majors. Um, I liked what they were trying to do there with showing the, like, kind some of explaining of cinematography. Ang- I, I said this was a well-produced Oscar, but there were some bizarre camera choices where it's like, we want to have everything on stage and then include it in the frame. And it was like, okay, we can, we can do some cuts. Like, this, yeah. would, this would look better if you just cut around this instead of us like slowly panning to see Michael B. Jordan pointing to an old camera. (laughs) But the last thing I wanted to say is um, much like the Academy, uh, we have to ask the question on everyone's mind after this Oscars, which is, are you guys excited for the little mermaid live action remake? No. Um, I'm in theory, but I mean, (laughs) looking at the footage, no. To be clear, I, I brought that up more to be like, I can't believe they actually like introduced it during the Oscars instead of it being like, a tra- like you know, just a commercial. I really want this and movie to like do well. Was... There didn't seem to be that many trailers for movies in the commercials. Well, I got a lot more for streaming. I got I got an Oppenheimer commercial. Oh, was, I did with Josh old. Peck. <laughs> well, my, here's here's my thought on it: is that if we're, I actually think the Academy Awards, if they want. Higher ratings, I think one way to do it would be to have new trailers for movies added. And I think that'd be acceptable as long as every studio got a slot. But it just being Disney, getting it at ABC, which they own, is just kind of like, are you kidding me? Because, like, I wouldn't mind a Little Mermaid trailer there if, like, say, let's say Tom Cruise actually showed up and wasn't afraid of Nicole Kidman and showed, like, a Mission Impossible trailer, too. Or, like, there was a Spider-Verse trailer from Sony and, like, uh, I'm trying to think uh barbie obviously like when margot robbie came out to like present the clip package for warner brothers where morgan freeman was like don't worry we're not going anywhere yeah okay Okay. also very weird that they did not have lord of the rings in that package at all (laughs) like their most oscar winning movie Um. but that was my whole thing is like i i don't mind i felt like it was very kind of scummy just to have it be the little mermaid be the only one to get a trailer 
like uh, introduced on the telecast because if Oppenheimer like even if like Oppenheimer was introduced on the telecast that would be fine you know like if Emily Blunt and Florence Pugh came out be like hey this is a movie about a bunch of men but we're in it to show the trailer I think the only thing that makes it okay for, I mean it's not okay but I think they wouldn't do something like Oppenheimer just because the Little Mermaid's not going to get nominated for any Oscars so I feel like you you have it's a calculated risk you can't show a movie trailer at the Oscars in that way yeah. I don't want. Well, I don't want like any of them. Impossible. It's like what I'm like. Mission Impossible. Like I don't. On, <laughs> I don't want any of them to be introduced in ceremony. But I definitely think that there, like every trailer break or every commercial break, there should be a big trailer being shown. Just I think that makes sense. Yeah, and I wish there were more instead of just having you know. Actually, weirdly, a lot of ads for Mandalorian again because it's ABC. But then also like timing the American born Chinese one. Right after Michelle Yeoh wins, it's like great. Or right before, no, right before they announced it's like it's like okay, I see what you're doing here. But yeah, I don't know. All overall, pretty satisfying Oscars to me. Some disappointing wins, but one aren't there. But Banshees of Inisherin, we'll talk about you in a couple of years, which will be pretty cool. Sarah, are you excited for the Banshees of Inisherin? Um, I'm not not excited. I thought the clips, you know. Seemed pretty interesting. The clips made it look like a comedy, which I know it is, but it looked more like a comedy than I was expecting. We will see what I say in two years, but for now, I'm I'm gonna bet my answer for should have won will be Colin Farrell. <laughs> that, that feels like a pretty solid bet, having seen the film. Because, but I also really that's a movie I want to revisit because I missed a lot of dialogue in theaters because it's very Irish. So well, there's a whole discourse about that too, but. Maybe we'll talk about yeah, it. Yeah, uh, we're talking about the uh, the the anonymous ballot that might belong to a person whose name rhymes with Reeve and Stu. No, I wasn't talking about that. <laughs> I was talking about Irish people. <laughs> well, no, no. In that ballot, he says there was a lot of talk about whoever this person. It's not actually Stephen Root. In fact, it can't be Stephen Root because I reread it and he insults Andrea Riseborough's nomination in a way. But maybe he and would do that. We don't know. He's in that movie. He, so I really doubt he'd be like that. But in that thing, they also he, he votes for Banshees for original screenplay, whoever this actor is, and goes, you know, there's a lot of people calling this a leprechaun movie, saying it's all about Lucky Charms. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Where's the, what are you, where did you see this? I'm not, I'm like, I mean, it's, it's about, like, I, I don't mind, Banshees, I, like, there's some, you know, there's always some things where I'm like, why would you vote for that? Like, Jamie Lee Curtis. But, like, for Banshees, like, the only person, the only thing for original screenplay, if someone voted for it this year, I'd be like, why'd you, why would you do that? It would be Triangle Sadness. Everything else, I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, sure, valid, but valid vote. But, like, Sorry, that's what I thought you were referring to. No, it was it, there, it was this whole thing about Irish people that was like it was on Saturday Saturday Night Live. I was also at the show. Um, I'll just <laughs> I guess I'll explain it. But on Saturday Saturday Night Live, the night before the Oscars, they did a sketch about the Oscars and like Brendan Gleeson and and Colin Farrell being there and like they were unintelligible and they were drunk and Colin Farrell was like fourteen years sober. First of all. Um, yeah. And then Jimmy Kimmel made a joke, you know, what were you saying in the movie? And and Colin Farrell said, watch Saturday Night Live. Um, but also another mm -hmm. joke that people are not <laughs> really talking about is when he said at the beginning, he said there's like a record number of Irish people there tonight. So there's guaranteed to be a fight on the stage, which is also a really bad stereotype for Irish people. 
people. So just kind of disparaging all around. How many how many jokes did he make about Germans? <laughs> <laughs> or was he all quiet on that front? <laughs> all right. All right, Jimmy. All right. We're going to table Banshees of Inisher and, and the 95th Academy Awards for another couple of years. Be excited for when I do my background uh, talk on the two Leslie nomination. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We'll talk about Stephen Root. <laughs> <laughs> like we will we will reopen that anonymous ballot to try to determine I'm gonna spend the next few years trying to figure it out. <laughs> this anonymous ballot that Caleb has no idea what's about. So I'll just leave him with the words the lady director and have him have him wonder which director that's referring to. Um but now let's go back to nineteen sixty-two at the 35th Academy Awards. With 10 nominations is a film called Lawrence of Arabia. It won seven. Won Best Picture, Best Director for David Lean, Best Original Score for Maurice Jarre. Probably butchered his name. Um, by the way, I wanted to... Uh, wait, very quickly, a pause. I've been mispronouncing Te Stephanie Shu's, Shu's name this entire time. And I want to apologize to her because I saw someone say, you should really take the time to learn how to pronounce this person's name if you've been talking about her a lot, Danny. So I'd like to apologize for that. I've been saying her I'm name sure, wrong I'm sure she'll appreciate for the last it. three years. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I said original score. So best sound, best art direction color, best cinematography color, and best film editing all for Lawrence Arabia. Then with eight nominations, was To Kill a Mockingbird, it won three. Best Actor for Gregory Peck, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Art Direction, Black and White. And then finally, there's a film with seven nominations and no wins, and that is Beauty on the Bounty, 1962. Sarah, how many, what, what were the Oscars this film was nominated for? Uh, yeah, it was nominated for uh, Best Picture and Lost to Lawrence of Arabia, Best Art Direction, Color, for George W. Davis, J. McMillan Johnson, Henry Grace, and Hugh Hunt. Uh, and they lost to John Box, John Stoll, and Dario Simone for Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, Davis was nominated 13 more times and won two. Johnson was nominated four more times and won one for Portrait of Jenny in 1949. Grace was nominated uh, 11 more times and won one for Gigi. And Hunt was nominated 10 more times and won two. Uh, best Cinematography Color for Robert Surtees. Uh, he lost to Freddie Young for Lawrence of Arabia. Robert Surtees was nominated 12 more times and won three. Um, best Film Editing for John McSweeney Jr., who lost to Anne V. Coates, woman, for Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, and he was also nominated for uh, The Chocolate Soldier and won one for Lily. Um, best music score substantially original uh, for Bronislaw Kaffer. <laughs> I just love the way that you speak called substantially original. That's what it's called. Because they play. No, I know, but it's because they play a couple songs in there that are from, like, you know, Britain. Anyway, go uh, on. For Bronislaw Kaffer, who lost to Marie Charest for uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Um, hang on. This is why I get next messed up. Okay. So John McSweeney Jr., Never nominated for anything else. Bronslaw Capper was nominated 12 more times and won three. No, 
was also nominated for the Chocolate Soldier. Hang on. Okay. Quick number one bit. Okay. Um, okay. Best film editing for John McSweeney Jr., who lost to Anvie Coates, a woman, for Lawrence of Arabia, never was nominated for anything else. Uh, best music score, substantially original for Bronslaw Capra, who lost to Maurice Jarre for Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, he was also nominated for The Chocolate Soldier and won one for Lily. Uh, best song for Bronslaw Capra and Paul Francis Webster, and they lost to Henry Mancini and Johnny Mercer for Days of Wine and Roses. Again, Capra was nominated for The Chocolate Soldier, won one for Lily. Uh, Webster was nominated 12 more times and won three. However, he is most famous, I would say, for writing the 1967 theme for Spider-Man. Um, and finally, best special effects. So you're effects. telling me he's probably credited in the Simpsons movie? I'm sure, I'm sure he is. I'm sure he is. Um, <laughs> Good. He deserves it. And uh, best special effects. For A. Arnold, Giuseppe, and Milo B. Lori, and they lost to Robert McDonald and Jacques Maman for The Longest Day. Uh, th- those are the only two nominees. Uh, Giuseppe was nominated more times and won three, plus a technical achievement for the engineering of an improved background process projection, si- projection system, uh, and Lori won for Ben-Hur. I wish it had won visual effects, because then we could talk about how oh, we went Music Man won something. Caleb, do you want me to go, or do you want to do historic context first? I can do my historical context, because frankly, I don't have a lot. Um, I mean, this is Mutiny on the Bounty is based off of you know a real event, although it's very different how it happened in real life. The, the only difference, I think, uh, really is worth noting, unless you're just really interested in the history of you know British naval mutinies, is that... um. The reason for the expedition, it's said in this movie, it's to feed the poor. They're going to get the bread plant so that they can uh, more easily feed the poor. When in reality, it was a way to save money on feeding enslaved people um, while they were uh, while they were transporting them around. Uh, they, you know, obviously they did not treat treat enslaved people well, um, but they uh, this was a way to. Probably, you know, find a cost cutting measure and treat them probably worse uh, by giving them a, a cheaper food that would still, you know, preserve them for uh, being sold. All right. So this ceremony um, obviously has one of the greatest films of all time in this picture. Uh, maybe that's a hot take. Maybe it's not. But uh, that's Lawrence of Arabia, uh, which means this is actually the debut of what I would call the king of the snub club of acting which is peter o'toole famously nominated for having the record with for most acting nominations and no wins and unlike glenn close who ties him who would be the queen of the snub club uh yeah he's dead so he has no chance to ever i mean she does have covid (laughs) so i think she gave it to elizabeth banks sorry sorry lawrence arabia is the only best picture winner to have no female speaking roles um which okay okay yeah it, hate this, it's still a really great movie <laughs> sorry <laughs> like um the other thing that makes this oscars very special is actress where i won't go into everything this is a good one first up yeah well first 
It does have the rare distinction of winning two acting Oscars. A Miracle Worker uh, won two acting Oscars, actress and supporting actress, without a nomination for Best Picture. The only other film to do this ever is HUD, which literally came out next year. So we'll see if we mention HUD next year. I don't know if it makes our countdown or not. But yeah, the other big thing that I don't really want to fully get into because it's been, you can watch an entire Ryan Murphy show about this if you want to. Um, Among other things is, this is the Academy Awards of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, where the Joan Crawford, Betty Davis um, feud came to a close, basically, where Betty Davis got nominated and Joan Crawford did not. However, Joan Crawford told the number of her nominated actresses that she would attend the Oscars and accept the awards for them if they were unavailable on the night of the ceremony. Now, Betty Davis did not object to this because this is something Betty Davis had done, uh, Joan Crawford had done in the past. Um, however, when Anne Bancroft won, Anne Bancroft was on Broadway at the time. So Betty Davis personally believed that much like a recent thing with Frances Fisher and Andrea Riceborough, she believed that Crawford had campaigned for Anne Bancroft once she knew that she was going to accept Anne Bancroft's award because Betty, uh, Betty Davis thought that she wanted to upstage and Crawford wanted to upstage her. So this made the new hatred of each other a big deal again, and Joan Crawford left the cast of Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, which was going to reunite the two in the following year. But yeah, if you want to know about that feud, you could watch a bad Ryan Murphy show about it, I'm sure. That's so. redundant. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, there's one good one. <laughs> it's the one he's barely involved with. <laughs> I heard it got bad after that season. But anyway, Mutiny on the Bounty. Yes. Next in 62. Yes. Remake. Uh, not a, I guess a readaptation of a former Best Picture winner. I will say there have been three movies that have been made of this story in America or, you know, mainstream. Uh, the first one, the part, the lead part was played by Clark Gable. Second one, it was played by Marlon Brando. And the third one, it was played by Mel Gibson. So they really just every I time said, <laughs> how could we get worse? <laughs> Needless to say, I would rather watch Clark Gable. Who directed the Mel Gibson one? Do you know? Do you have that open or no? I don't. I think you it was it, it was some director I never heard of. Here, I got it open. Oh, he, he was in The Bounty. Roger yeah. Donaldson. Oh! Was Anthony Hopkins the captain, though? Yes. That would, that's good. I, I'm okay well, with that. Well, here's the thing that's the worst part, is that Christopher Reeve was almost cast as Mel Gibson's uh, part, which would have been a fantastic combination, but it was not meant to be. Was this around when he had his accident, or was... No, this was before he was famous at all. Really? Because the movie was in production for a long time. Oh, wow. All right. So... Actually, interesting thing about that remake, I see now that originally it was being developed by David Lean, which is amusing to me because obviously David Lean completely destroyed this this year at this Oscars, this version. So the fact that he was like, no, nah, I want to do that again because I messed it up the year I made Lawrence of Arabia. Kind of funny to me. Um, but yeah. Uh, Mutiny on the Bounty. Who wants to go first? <laughs> 
I'll do it. Um, Mutiny on the Bounty. Uh, I haven't seen the other version. Uh, the other notable version. I haven't seen either of the other versions, but I haven't seen the 30s one. I'm sure I would have uh, some opinions on it if I did. Uh, but this one, it looks nice. I think it's well shot. Uh, I think it has a good, a good set. It's a pretty stiff story that just never really finds uh finds a good pace and never really finds uh much of an emotional hook for me it's one of those where like i can tell these pieces can be arranged into a good story but um it, you know it didn't do it for me this time uh well i'm about to drop take just to be kind of edgy and then i will clarify that i think this movie's better than this but this reminded me of the recent remake of west side story where the reason i say this is you, you know, you go back to the story that was made into a movie in 1935 and you remake it and you expect it to have like a new angle of some kind. Um, and then it's pretty much the exact same thing tonally. And it's like, I, I haven't seen the original film, but to me, this felt like a story stuck in 1930. Um, this feels, and, and now, I will, now I'll say what I was going to say. I do like the new West Side Story to a certain degree. And I do think, obviously, getting rid of the brown face is a good enough angle on its own to be like, yeah, sure, let's remake it. But with this, it's like, it's really long. Uh, and my whole thought on it was, I wasn't very positive on the Kane unit, but I, I look at these movies, and to me, they hit all the same, they both hit the same beats, but the Kane unit does it so much more interesting and so much more like, you know, it's obvious the K-Mutiny is, like, taking some inspiration from the original source material, because it's a mutiny at sea. And that's, like, this is, like, the most famous story about mutiny at sea. Um, but it's, like, now that we... I'm kind of like, well, the K-Mutiny, I think, came out, like, what, five, six years prior to this? Because we've been kind of jumping all over the place recently. Um, I don't think it took, like... It's just, like, why even bother with this? Like, you know? <laughs> Especially when you have the... No, no, even ignoring that. The fact that it's like this big 70 millimeter epic that came out the same year of Lawrence of Arabia. It's like, okay, so like, why, why even bother with like watching? I get why it bombed. It's like, you'd see this, because you know, back back in the 60s, movies were incredibly dependent on repeat business. So it's like, okay, you watched it once and Lawrence of Arabia is out probably around the same time. Why would you bother going back to this when you can go see that? And also just on its own, I find this incredibly turgid. But I will say I agree, Caleb. It does have very good production. You can tell a lot of money went into this, and it does look cool at points. But it's just like n no reason ever given to really care. Well, I just want to say the reason why you guys probably think it looks cool is because they filmed the entire thing on a real boat. Um, besides the parts when they were in Tahiti. Um, I have to tell a story. <laughs> so when I was young. In kindergarten, my favorite movie that I would play all the time, the VHS tape, I would, well, I would, I had morning kindergarten, I would come home and eat lunch, afternoon, I would eat lunch because I didn't have afternoon, and I would eat peanut butter and marshmallow sandwiches and sour cream and onion Pringles, and then I would watch uh, this, a particular movie over and over again, and that movie was Muppet Treasure Island. <laughs> Set there for three hours straight every time. If, if a movie is on a boat, 
I will enjoy it. I'm sorry. I thought this was okay. Do I think this was a good movie? No. Did I enjoy watching it? Yes. I think part of it is that I took it as like the performances were so bad <laughs> that I just kind of enjoyed the ride. I loved the boat. I what what can I say? I love boats. Well, uh, you remind me of the one moment at the Oscars. I'm surprised you didn't mention is Sarah Polly getting like leaving the stage the pirates that can't be in play. <laughs> what timing, truly. <laughs> well, didn't I say women I was talk. like, I was so the, the scared this was gonna talk. be a Johnny Depp cue. Johnny Depp. Johnny, Johnny Depp's music starts playing once what it was You know what? That's so funny too, because I really don't like those movies. So I guess there is an exception an exception to every rule. Meanwhile, this is the only movie set on boats I like, not because of Johnny Depp, listeners. You love Johnny Depp. Don't worry, you can still hate mail me. Well, I'm glad one of us liked it. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm curious, Sarah, because you also were kind of the sole defender of Kane Mutiny. Um, <laughs> Not a boat. Which is better? Um, obviously, Kane Mutiny is better. I think in terms of story, in terms of performances, in terms of tension, I just, something about this, like the cheese factor is just so good to me. It's kind of violent. It's kind of sexy. Like, it's just kind of like one of those body movies where they really thought that they were doing something here. And plus, I am obsessed <laughs> with, I'm obsessed with the behind the scene info. This is like the first, so with some context, this is like the first. There's a lot of crazy There's a lot here. of stuff going on, but this is like the first movie, I would say, where people were finally like, we have to stop hiring this guy. <laughs> Marlon Brando was such a pain. They went through two directors. They Richard Harris refused to film with him by the end. It was just it was a nightmare. It was like and like when he would film scenes with Trevor Howard, he would literally plug his ears and he, he would improvise all of his lines so that Trevor Howard could not interact with him. It just he's insane. <laughs> he's just such a freak, dude. Like he what? is. Can I can I read my favorite paragraph on Wikipedia? How um, how did con- this man have such a long career? For for context, um, Sarah, you said that they they went through a couple of directors, and the last one they landed on was Lewis Milestone, who directed the original Acquire on the Western Front. Um, but <laughs> this paragraph I have to read, which is Milestone later said, "I felt it would be an easy assignment because they'd been on for months, and surely there couldn't be much left to do." However, he said they found they only had shot one seven-minute scene, which is when Trevor Howard issues directions about obtaining breadfruit. Oh my god! It's just like and like surely there's not much left to do. It was uh, like we got so seven they, minutes out of three hours. So they filmed they filmed that real boat, and Marlon Brando would go out on a little rowboat and just go eat ice cream of five of five gallons. Jug of ice cream, <laughs> and they kept having to get him new pants because his pants were too small. <laughs> I had no idea about this stuff. It's just he's insane. <laughs> he did eventually end up working with Trevor Howard again because he apologized to him. But so many, I mean, people love Trevor Howard's performance in this movie. They absolutely obliterated Marlon Brando because of his British accent. It's just, this was kind of the downfall, I would say, the start of the downfall of Marlon Brando. Of course, he came back up, but this was like, they could not tolerate this behavior anymore. I gotta say, uh, 
But I will. There's a lot of things on this Wikipedia page that cites, and it, it says it's from his memoirs, so they don't say it as fact. But Brando's memoirs is he was offered the lead of Lawrence of Arabia, but he chose Bounty the Bounty because he wanted to go to Tahiti. And I gotta say, if there's any truth to that. Thank you, Marlon Brando, for letting me making a shitty movie instead of ruining like an all-time great movie. Because <laughs> like, the often... idea of getting that this British accent in Lawrence Arabia, especially because Peter O'Toole is like one of the greatest like debut performances ever in Lawrence Arabia. He was also offered to be in Cleopatra at the same time, which obviously has a lot of parallels to this movie because it went massively over budget. <laughs> um, and he just, I don't, I mean, I really, I don't like Marlon Brando. I think he's kind of like an old time Jared Leto, but I just, some, I have such a begrudging respect for just the audacity that he has. I just, I just That's keep imagining him rolling out, <laughs> setting up shop and eating his ice cream. I also just like the only thing I had read on Wikipedia, the only thing was like legacy of the movie, which is just, oh, Marlon Brando got married to, I think, the person who played his yes. love interest, right? Well, he personally chose uh, her to play his wife and then married her. Yeah. And then they had two kids and then they divorced 10 years later. Which honestly lasts a little longer than I thought it might. Yeah. All of that whole story. Um, I also, the, this is such a great. There's so many good behind this the scenes info. I like the last one is the post production thing, which is the Saturday Evening Post ran an article about the making of the film, which Brando felt disparaged him, which it probably did off of everything I'm reading about the making of this film. He sues them for five million dollars, and then he gets MGM's president to speak in support of his lawsuit. However, the tactic backfires on Vogel and was used against him when he resigned. I don't know how there's a citation needed, but this makes me laugh. Billy Wilder suggested the ending. Oh, here. Oh Speaking gosh. of the ending, this is what this is my favorite one. Um, spoiler alert. Sorry. Marlon Brando's death scene was directed by an assistant as Lewis Milestone couldn't bear dealing with him. An actress was kneeling beside Brando off camera with his lines written on her forehead. <laughs> <laughs> he can't even learn his lines. That's why he was always improvising because he didn't he couldn't do his lines. See, I agree. I don't I wouldn't say I like him. But there is I want Marlon Brando to be in every movie just so we get more stories. I feel like you, you compare him to Jared Leto. And Jared Leto is just very annoying to me. To me, it kind of just reminds me more of like um I maybe it's not the same thing, but like the stories around Walking Phoenix. Just legitimately not caring about. Any- well, he's the opposite. He does. He only cares about the acting. Anything else, he's just like, nah. I'm. I'm like. But then there's also like you know the picture of him and Rooney Mara on a smoke break on the Jesus movie. So I guess maybe not. Maybe that's not a good comparison. Um, pause. <laughs> pause. Maybe but he's I like, like. I, I do. He's like. Then he's getting chased by jokers. He's like Kendall Roy. <laughs> yeah. Which is Dan Kendall Roy here. <laughs> I just... What can I say? My thing is, he's not really like Jared Leto, though, because I find him to be really charming when he acts. Even when he has a horrible accent, he's so alluring to watch on screen. 
this movie cost $10 million and it was supposed to, and Wiki lists the budget at $19 million. That means they went over double the amount of what they were supposed to spend on. Well, now I need to look this up. He, um... It... Oh, sorry. Accent? Yeah, accent aside, I think he is very well cast in this role. And I, like, especially at the end when he's kind of, like, you know, his, his... fellow mutineers are kind of laughing around the fire and he's standing back and looking at them. Like, I think that's really good acting on his end. Um, I'm not sure if there is a modern parallel to Marlon Brando, um, or at least not a Mar. We don't know who it is yet because obviously Brando had a, a very interesting career after this movie as well. That I think, I think his, right. uh, his shenanigans on the set of apocalypse now help. Uh, kind of make him a a a a film a fixture in film history if nothing else i gotta i gotta um give some some uh level of reference for the inflation of this movie is that it made about 135 million dollars today in the u.s like that's how much money it made but that's like it's worldwide gross for for reference that's how much like silver linings playbook made like as a recent oscar oh, 10 years ago now but you know what i mean like that type of like or la la land that's like the amount of money that movie those movies make it cost 189 million dollars today <laughs> which i guess is kind of a bargain now that we think about it because the pirates of the caribbean movie each cost like 400 million dollars now but it's just like are you kidding me like, like this is a really bad bomb yeah, it's pretty, and it's pretty insane that this was even nominated for anything. I'm gonna be honest with you. <laughs> it's, and again, it's just something we're also just like it's so overshadowed, obviously. By I have to, I have to wonder. Although this wouldn't be listed on Wikipedia, I wonder if they rushed out the release date so it could be the first film on 70 millimeter to be released because Lawrence Arabia came out a month later, and obviously Lawrence of Arabia is considered the uh oh excuse me shot on ultra panavision because nine um 1969 of course 2001 space odyssey comes out and that's like a big deal oh sorry this is the first one that was labeled ultra panavision instead of mgm camera 65 actually this is the same camera that ben hur was shot on um so maybe i'm being a little too kind to it but again so my thought on this whole is you know in chicago we have the 70 millimeter film festival that i always hit up and they always like show like because you know they can't show all bangers right like they always have one Arabia, they always have west side story no sorry they always have west side story in 2001 they usually get like lawrence of arabia and then they usually get like they get the recent ones too so like they'll show like you know probably this year we'll get dunkirk because they haven't shown it yet at one of the fests but then they usually will show like some deep cut like last time they showed like geronimo like the West Studi epic from the 1990s that randomly got a 70 millimeter print. And this definitely feels like something where they'd be like, someone would be like renting them or, you know, like giving them Lawrence Arabian, like, hey, do you want Muni on the Bounty too? And they'd be like, uh, sure, we haven't shown it yet. <laughs> like, yeah, we'll we'll do it this time. Sure, we'll, we'll program it. A couple people will come out for it. Um, And real, real talk, if I get a 70 millimeter pass in their shows, I'll probably... I won't make time to see it, but if it's a time that I can go to see, I'll be like, yeah, sure, I'll give it another shot. Maybe, maybe the C looks better on film. But like, it really is just like, 
what's, what's the point to this? <laughs> That's why it's just like... <laughs> I think, like, and you look at 1960s, and you see, like, a lot of turning points in culture. And we're still kind of early into the 60s, so I'm not sure how much we can... I can really chalk up to this. But, I mean, 62, the Beatles dropped their first album and stuff. The first James Bond movie came out. Um, or I think the Beatles dropped their first single. I think their album was 63. But anyway, there was a lot of changing in culture. There was the rise of youth culture. There was the British invasion coming along. And of course, we we're in the middle of the Vietnam War. And I think if you put out a movie like this, that seems just so stiff and old fashioned, I'm not sure how it's going to resonate with the 1960s audience, especially if you don't have like a really firm stance on like the the morality of following orders and being in the military. I mean, we are several years into the Vietnam War at this point. I don't know how um, you have a movie like this and you don't draw some parallels between uh, the mutiny and, you know, uh, dodging the draft. I go back to Keith, and I know, Caleb, you hate comparative criticism, but I think it is so valid because they're both long epics one of them wins seven Oscars. Lawrence of Arabia is very clearly like the evolution of the epic, you know, like the 50s big epic where it does do some. I don't know if actually you've seen Lawrence of Arabia. Mm-hmm. Um, OK, so, you know, it does that interrogating of like authority. It does that interrogating. I mean, it, there's still some brown face in it. There's still some questionable elements to it, but it's such a clear like this is a modern for the 60s take on what this story is. And then you see this and it's just like. I, I literally think this is feels the uh, the budget's bigger, but it feels like pretty much the exact same movie I'd get in 1935. Uh, I haven't seen the 1935 version. I'm sure the 1935 one is better. It's an hour shorter. Um, so, but I'm just like, what? Like, it's very much like a who asked for this this way other than maybe like, maybe Marlon Brando really wanted to play this role. And they're like, yeah, sure. We'll give Marlon Brando a big epic like this. He's a he's a draw, but other than that, it's like, what? Like <laughs> that's really my whole take is, why was this made? <laughs> Where was who, who were the executives who were like, oh yeah, we definitely need another one of these. Granted, who knows? There were people who literally like last April being like, who actually asked for another top man? So maybe maybe that. Maybe well, it's one of those I'm days. still asking myself that, so don't worry about that. True. I just difference is is that the 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 box office does not not agree with you. There was here it definitely agrees with us. <laughs> but I think your original comparison is probably right. I mean, I don't think that anybody is going to look at Steven Spielberg West Side Story and be like, "This is West Side Story." I think everybody's going to look at the original, and I think people will either look at the 1932 one or they'll look at the Anthony Hopkins one. I don't think anybody's going to touch this Marlon Brando one. This one is like the way I the way I mark a movie as obscure is if there's no copies of it at the Chicago Library. <laughs> this is not the other two versions are available and this one is not. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't even like we were kind of talking about like the movie and it's like I don't what's it to talk about here? Does he, the heaty looks nice? The boat looks yeah, nice. I mean, filming on the boat, I think, is actually really cool, really innovative. I think it looks great. There's a lot of interesting stories about how they had too much crew and 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 equipment on the boat, so it almost sank. Um, maybe Marlon Brando's only good idea on the set 
is they were going to burn the boat at the end and he made them build a replica, which costs a lot of money. Um, and the boat was a real boat. And uh, unfortunately, his character or his the person who played Christian Fletcher, one of his descendants was on the boat uh, during Hurricane Sandy and ended up dying and the boat ended up getting destroyed. Um, but it stayed for a long time, 60 years. It's pretty cool. I see that someone died in the production of this film too. Sank, I just saw that. So I'm guessing the interiors weren't the real boat. Those were sets, I'm guessing. Have to imagine. How would you get the camera and the sound equipment done? I don't know though, because I did read that it was really difficult for crew members to get out of the way and people were like throwing up everywhere (laughs) because the boat was moving around. So I don't know the I don't know the story, but I would guess it might be a mixture of the two. What I do like about that first kind of like it's the officer's dinner that they have. It's pretty early on in the movie, but like the the cabin is constantly rocking. Um, I was going to say, I noticed that also at the end um, when they're meet. Anyway, yeah, same thing. Sorry, go on. No, it's just I think that's a that's a good attention to detail. I think there's good attention to detail in like the workings of the ship and stuff. I think the segment where someone gets keel hauled is really well shot. Um, and very, you know, upsetting to watch as it should be. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of attention to detail here in terms of like just being on a boat. It's just a shame. It's like this three hour movie around it. That's just like something that I think everyone has seen before, even if they haven't seen the original mutiny on the bounty or any adaptation of it, you know, it's just a very archetypical story with no unique angle to it. You guys have anything else you want to talk about this movie? <laughs> I really, it's it's really funny whenever we watch like a three hour movie and just like, there's, there's nothing good to talk about here. <laughs> um, I don't know. I respect it. Would I, do I like it? Well, I would say I like it, but it's, uh, I just admire, I admire the production value and I admire everybody who put up with the production. <laughs> All right. Well, Sarah, what was this nominated for? Well, believe it or not, this was nominated for Best Picture, Best Art Direction Color, uh, Best Cinematography Color, Best Film Editing, Best Music Score, Substantially Original, Best Song, which we didn't talk about at all. And It's not noticeable. Doesn't it only play in the intermission? No, it plays a few times. But the full version is the intermission. Uh, And then Best Special Effects. Um, I'm sure we will all, well, maybe I, I, I can't say I'm sure, but I'm, I would be surprised if we don't all go for our direction on this. I'm going for our direction on this. The boat is really cool. Um, and my other thing that I want to note, because, you know, I keep making the comparison is there is a moment at the end of this movie where we cut to Britain and we see like this big hall of some kind, like a courthouse. And it did remind me of Lawrence of Arabia because there's a similar building in it. But I actually was like, you know what? If this is comparable to, like, it didn't look notably worse to me or better to me, where it's like, well, I think to me, the coolness of Lawrence of Arabia is they shot it all in the desert, which, like I said earlier, with my opinion on the All Quiet on the Western Front winter production design, I don't know when you, to me, sorry, sorry, production designers who specialize on location shooting, when you just dig holes, I'm not that impressed. I'm uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, and I think this is a, comparatively, I think this is a better showcase of production design actually than Lawrence of Arabia. 
So I feel educated enough to say I picked the right show design or direction. I agree. I also feel like I w- I'm not going to say special effects because part of I didn't say it, but part of it, it's both visual and audio effects. And I think the audio is kind of bad at points. So, <laughs> so I'm going to go with production mm-hmm. design or art direction. Yeah, I think you could get away with saying special effects um, in terms of the visual side. I I was actually going to give it to that, but then when you pointed out it was also audio, I'm like, well, maybe not. Um, I think the (laughs) when they're trying to trying to get around the horn of South Africa, I think that's very well uh, well put together sequence of the movie. Uh, But yeah, I'll go I'll go art direction as well. It's the it's the clear standout. Okay, now. Nom, do you add? I'm going to go with Trevor Howard uh, in supporting. Um, I feel like he is uh, he's pretty good. He looks suitably annoyed at most points, which I imagine is because he was working with Marlon Brando. Um, but I, I, I liked his performance. I have two, potentially, but I think I'm going to go with... Do I give it to this? I'm going to go with best director for a similar reason. I feel like I feel like Lewis Milestone really tried. It was it was a difficult process for him and I'm sure it was not easy. And I I like I mean I like how the movie came together, definitely. Now, before I say my winner, I want to point out two things cuz I'm now looking at the um the page of the cast list. Um, one is that there's a character in this apparently named John Williams that didn't clock, but you know, good for him being an another Oscar nominated film. Um, I have I have another thing the, to say about that, but go. I did I did notice this in film is that there's a character named Minari, and I was like Minari, I should rewatch that. That's a good one. Um, anyway, these dumb bits aside, I agree with Caleb. Uh, Trevor Howard, nice hammy bits at points. Knowing he was annoyed on set helps too. But I just, you know, generally had a lot of presence in this. And I, I guess part of that's that Bly is a good role to have. But it's just, you know, it's a good, nice little performance. I, I, I Trevor Howard, agree. Did you guys notice that George McKay was in this movie? Oh. What a career. What, what a career he's I'll had. Have to, I'll have to go back and uh, spot him out. <laughs> he's, the, uh, just, he's a young guy. He looks just like him. The one who wanted George to get McKay. married. So, so glad he keeps his career going. Um, what a career. Fantastic. Yeah. Decades long. Yeah. What has he been doing lately? I guess that's it. I guess I'll look later. Movie, he was in that movie Wolf about the person who thought they were a dog. Oh. But I also just make jokes about him because I have a friend who looks just like him. Is, is he in this movie too? Just, yeah. Congrats, Jack. Um, ah, ah, that's Beauty on the Bounty, everyone. That's... <laughs> What a mutiny it was. You guys want to know what we're doing next? Who time? ate the strawberries? That's all I want to know. You know, when they, the, I don't know. Strawberry <laughs> ice cream. This, there was a moment very, yeah, very early on. I was just like, oh, yeah, this is a team mutiny insider. Anyway, you guys want to know what we're doing next time? Yeah, Absolutely. We are reaching a milestone, guys. Our next episode is our 50th episode, which means this isn't a surprise to either of them because we've talked about this. Our 50th episode, we are going. Back to the first Academy Awards. 
because we had another film that we were always like, oh, maybe we'll cover this at some point, called Sadie Thompson, directed by Raoul Walsh, famously starring uh, Gloria Swanson, who I'm sure we will talk about quite a bit about it. But this is the first Academy Awards. That's two nominations and no wins. Um, 1928. So we're going to be jumping back to 1928 to talk about that. And then beforehand, we'll probably do a lot of... I, I'm prepping a little surprises for the 50th episode. Spectacular. So a lot of cool cool stuff coming your way. You guys can prep stuff too if you want. I don't know if Caleb or Sarah, you have any ideas of stuff you want to do for the 50th episode. But yeah, it's our 50th episode. It's a big one. So pretty, pretty exciting, I think. Hot take. Yeah. And it will be coming around our anniversary, right? Sometime around there? Yeah. Yeah. Two years. Two years. Two weeks. No, two years. But yeah. I'm getting Vincent. You can follow me on Letterboxd at Linkments. You can also listen to my ever show, Looking for the Ocean, a Pixar Journey, where we are, you know, doing the Pixar. You know, the Pixar thing. I don't know. Just check it out. Just, you know, just, just go over there. Just go look at it. We put up a Rad Tweet episode. We actually had a very weirdly timed weekend during the Oscars. I just want to shout that out. The fact that we dropped a Ratatouille episode right before the Oscars. And then for this show, we dropped the uh, Flower Drum song right after the Oscars. So very timely on both my shows. By accident for both, too. So I am Caleb from Caleb from the Real World. You can find me on Instagram and YouTube. And from there, you can find my litany of other podcasts, Hot Trash Unlimited, Star Wars Therapy, and All New 52, which I do with our editor, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Thanks Joe. Joe. If you could slap anybody who was on stage at the Oscars, who would it be? <laughs> I'm insulted I would be asked to do such a violent crime. <laughs> I, hope he doesn't say, like, I hope he doesn't say something like inappropriate. <laughs> he didn't watch the Oscars, so I have no idea what he'll say. <laughs> um, you can find me on Letterboxd, just my name, Sarah Knopf. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at SGK29, E-S-S-G-E-K-Y-29. Um, you can find us on Facebook, the Snub Club, Instagram, Snub Club Podcast, and Twitter, Snub Club Pod. All right, and then we'll see you next time for our 50th episode spectacular with Sadie Thompson. All right. Uh, bye, I guess. Bye. See ya. <laughs>